0: Oh, good evening. Um, shall I pray for us again as we <laughs> I don't know if this group's been doing enough praying. So. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are completely and utterly faithful. What you say you will do, you do. Father, help us to have the faith, to believe that you have the power to do what you have promised. Thank you for Abraham and his example in this. And we pray this evening that you will build up our faith, build up our trust in you. So as we look at your word, please... Please um, bring it alive to us. Please help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Help us to see ourselves in it and see where we need to be challenged and changed and renewed. So please, Lord, we we ask for you to be at work in our hearts by your Spirit. Um, Please use my words um, for your glory and your eternal purposes in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, do turn up uh, Genesis 18 and 19. than do a kind of typical three-point sermon with points all beginning with F, Um, because there's just loads in this chapter and because it's a great story, what I'm hoping to do or what I'm planning to do is is just tell the story and as we go through, uh, we'll stop every now and then and think about the implications and, and what it all means for us. Um, Because often when it comes to these great narrative passages uh, in the Old Testament, we can lose the drama of it when we kind of break it down to nice little points and um, things like that. So I hope that's okay. I'm not going to say too much more before I get into the story, but um, other than this, the last few weeks we've been thinking about the nature of faith and we've been saying that faith is about uh, trusting God to keep his word. Um, Paul picks up on, on Abraham's story in Romans 4 and he says Rome, uh, that, that, uh, that Abraham um, believed that God had the power to do what he had promised. Um, so as we've been seeing in the last few weeks, that's what faith is all about. That's the faith that we've seen in Abraham. So as we go through the story this evening, I want you to look out for that. Look out for that faith. Look out for the characters who are trusting God to keep his word. And on the flip side of that, the opposite of faith, we'll see that as well. We'll see characters who think that actually they know better than God. And rather than trust him, they're sceptical that he actually will keep his promises. So I want you to look out for that as well. Um, So watch out for for the characters trusting God to keep his promises and acting in response to that. And watch out for the characters who actually think that they know better than God and are sceptical that he's going to keep their promises. And and as we go through, um, think, how do you relate to these characters? So, uh, chapter 18, the story begins in the heat of the day, Abraham sitting in the entrance to his tent, um, no doubt with the summer edition of Camping and Caravan Club magazine, and he notices um, three men standing nearby, and verse 1 makes it clear that one of them is the Lord. And so Abraham rushes out to meet them and he shows the customary uh, proper respect. He bows low to the ground, showing them that he thinks they are worthy of great respect. And he invites them to, to stay for a while, to come in, to refresh themselves, to, to clean up and to have some food. And like a typical husband, he's not a clue about how, what to do about that and so rushes into the tent to sort it all out with management and get her on the case. Culturally, hospitality... Uh, in this um, neck of the woods at this time in history is a very very big thing and as you go through those verses there we see Abraham and Sarah go to great lengths to extend their very generous hospitality to the three visitors Um, they bake fresh bread Abraham runs to get a choice calf to slaughter and kill and prepare for them, not the lamb, um, as might have been nice in lots of other places. This is, this is a notch above that. This is a calf. And so they duly prepare all this food and make this sumptuous feast. Um, and Abraham, uh, if you notice, stands nearby whilst they eat, um, no doubt with a tea towel over his arm, um, waiting on them. Would you like some more salt on that, sir? You know, that, that, that kind of thing. And uh, when the three have, have finished eating, the Lord says to him, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah, meanwhile, is, is listening in the tent. And when she hears this, she laughs to herself. Why does she laugh? Well, she's laughing in disbelief. It's, it's the laugh of, of a skeptic. It's a kind of, yeah, right, whatever. She and Abraham are old, advanced in years, as, the, as our Bibles tell us. Um, some of the older translations say the way of women had ceased to be with her. In other words, she's not able to have children. And actually, it's it's been 25 long years since they received the promise. 25 years of waiting and longing and trying and of disappointment. And so Sarah, she's, I guess, pretty frustrated with God and is sceptical about his ability to keep his promises and it's got to the point where, where, frankly, she knows better than to trust him in her mind. But did you notice she laughs to herself? She doesn't laugh out loud, not in public. On the outside, you wouldn't know this was going on at all. On the outside, just business as usual. But on the inside, she's skeptical. She's frustrated, and she's laughing at the word of God. Essentially, she's saying, "I know better than He does." Well, the Lord knows her heart. And interestingly, he asks Abraham, "Why is Sarah laughing?" Uh, why did she laugh when I say that, that she will have a child?" Verse 14: "Is anything too hard?" for the Lord what did well Sarah is afraid and so she lies to the Lord and said well, I, didn't, I didn't laugh and I guess that betrays how important her reputation is to her actually what, what other people think about her is what's most important, more important than anything else. So this is an extraordinary incident. Um, The Lord and two angels come to have a meal with Abraham and and reaffirm the promise that actually after all this waiting, in a year's time when they return, they will have a son. So the men um, get up to go and leave, and Abraham goes with them, um, as is customary as well. And I guess probably an awkward few minutes as they uh, walk out the door after what's just happened. And then we get another extraordinary incident. Two men look towards, well, they all kind of look towards Sodom, The two men go down towards Sodom on their way down there. And then the Lord with Abraham does something extraordinary. He chooses to disclose to Abraham what he plans to do to Sodom. Verse Verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that actually he's come to carefully scrutinise the evidence and give it his direct attention. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. Similar kind of language to, to the blood of Abel that cried out to the Lord for justice. And then this, just Abraham and the Lord left And there's an amazing exchange. Abraham proceeds to to intercede on behalf of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And no doubt, Lot and his family are in his head as he's thinking this through about what's going to happen. And in the exchange that follows, Abraham displays a, a humble confidence that is rooted in what he knows about God's character. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? Is what Abraham says. Abraham has complete trust in the justice of the Lord. That actually the Lord will always do what is right. Whereas Sarah laughed at God and was sceptical at his ability to keep his promises... And be true to his word where she thought she knew better than God Abraham displays real humility verse 27 he he recognises that actually he's, he's nothing but dust and ashes he knows who's in control and he engages with God on the fate of the righteous in Sodom And so we get those hypothetical scenarios that that Abraham uh, comes up with as he pleads with the Lord and intercedes with them. Um, And so we go down from, there's 50 righteous, would you save it? All the way down to, to 10. And the Lord agrees that if there are 10 righteous found, the city will not be overthrown. So really intriguing incident in Abraham's life and in the story of the Bible and and a great model for prayer for us here actually and a great encouragement for us to get stuck into engaging with God Abraham appeals to God on the basis of his character and he makes his requests with humble confidence it 's the, the opposite of thinking we know best he 's trusting that God has the power to do what he has promised, that he is just, that he is good, that he can only do what is holy and righteous so prayer is mysterious we know that, that God is utterly sovereign, and the bible. Uh, But but at the same time, the Bible is is full of examples like this that show that God, who is sovereign and in control, does respond to us when we come to him uh, with humble confidence. So verse 33. Abraham, they finish speaking and Abraham returns home. He doesn't do, perhaps what you and I might have done. If we'd known that the city where our, fami- where our family members was about to be destroyed, and we'd just kind of interceded with, with God about that, perhaps you and I would have been tempted to run on down there and warn them just in case um, the prayers didn't work or God wasn't going to be faithful. But But Abraham has got that humble confidence that he's... He's engaged with God and God's in control and and it's safe to leave it with him. So he returns home. Meanwhile, the two angels arrive at Sodom and they find Lot sitting at the city gate and that indicates that that actually Lot's pretty established in the town. The city gate is the centre of commerce and trade. It's a place of influence, where the influential people would sit and talk and decide. Um, So whereas in years gone by, Lot and his family and his servants and his cattle and everything had uh, had made their home outside the city, in their tents. Here we find he's pretty established uh, in the life of this urban city. And his, his response to the two men is pretty similar to Abraham's at first as well. Maybe not quite as generous in his hospitality. But he bows low and he insists that they come to stay at his house because he knows what the city's like and he knows they're not going to be safe if they sleep overnight on the market square as, as they want to do. And so he makes the meal in haste with unleavened bread No choice meet for them this time. But but Lot's welcome and his respect for these men is contrasted to the rest of the men in the city. And we see that actually all the men in the city, both young and old, come knocking on his door demand that Lot lets the two men out so that basically they can have a gang rape of these two guys. And Lot is desperate to protect these two men that that are staying in his house. And and brothers, he urges them, you cannot do this wicked thing, he says. And in desperation, he he offers his, his two daughters as substitutes. Just shockingly, Cowardly, inexcusable thing. Even if it was meant to be a bluff. What was he thinking? I guess it shows he's probably been in this town too long. Shows how compromised actually he's he's getting. And the mob's reaction confirms the evil nature of their intentions. And actually their reaction too shows that that Lot actually has no moral high ground in this town. Shows how compromised his witness is in this place. That actually just slowly over time we get the impression he's just been squeezed into the mould of this town rather than being salt and light. So the hostility of this angry mob turns towards Lot who has to be rescued by the people he's trying to protect. So this angry, sex-crazed mob are struck with blindness as they try to break the door down. What a sight that would have been um, for onlookers. And uh, the angels then warn Lot of the imminent destruction that is awaiting this town, and he tells Lot to make sure he and his family go, get gone. And so Lot talks to his his sons-in-law, and they think it's a big old joke. They laugh and ignore what Lot says, ignore the word of the Lord, and think they know better. Dawn comes. The angels are, are urging Lot to get a move on. He fails to grasp the, the urgency of the, and the seriousness of the situation and, and he lingers. I guess Mary knows all, all about husbands failing to grasp the urgency of situations and faffing about when they should be leaving. <laughs> but verse 16, the Lord is merciful them. When he hesitated, the men grabbed him and his family and just dragged him out the door. Um, they show great patience to Lot as he lingers and hesitates and faffs about. And they have to extend that patience further and further as, as the story goes on. Lot first of all says, oh, we're not going to be able to make it to the, uh, to the mountains um, how about we go to this small little small little tiny town? Did I mention it was small? Um, surely that'll be all right. Can we can we stay there? The agency uh, the angels say sure. Okay, agree to it. And they agree to 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 withhold the destruction until Lot and his family are safe. So sure enough, when they get to um, Zoar, however you say it. It means small, apparently. (laughs) Sodom and Gomorrah are utterly destroyed by burning sulfur raining down from on high. Uh, The entire plain is just wiped out. All the vegetation, everything is is destroyed. And we read that, that Lot's wife, who lingered even more than Lot did, was behind them, we read. And she turned around, disobeying the words of the angel of the Lord. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. So probably just engulfed in the fiery molten lava that was raining down. So it's pretty scary stuff. Um, Frightening, even. the, The devastation. There, And I guess um, stories like that and and talk of judgment and wrath and fire and brimstone are not at all popular subjects today. And and often can be big sticking points for for non-Christian friends of ours. Wrath, anger, judgment, wiping out whole towns. How can a loving God do that? How can you believe in a God that will just do that? It's just so medieval. And our friends just, and our society at large, just cannot comprehend that God can do that. And actually Christians too over the years have have said that Actually, we shouldn't be trying to frighten people into becoming Christians. Um, So, what we need to do is just talk about the love of God instead and kind of, yeah, not talk about the wrath and judgment side of things. Now, while there may be some truth in that, but what is it that's motivating that suggestion? but I I think it's that all too easily we can be embarrassed about God's word and this aspect of his character. And it's very easy to feel that kind of uncomfortableness when we're talking to our our friends about the gospel. It's easy to, to slip into just kind of fudging the judgment, hell type of stuff. Well, why do we do that? well isn't it that in those times we think actually we know better than God and actually our friends, well if we if we kind of talk about that stuff they're, they're not going to respond at all so let's um, just fudge that and talk about this instead well we shouldn't be embarrassed about God's justice it's as foundational to his character as his love is. The Bible actually maintains that the justice of God, the judgment of God, is good news. Because wrath is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. And the Bible's clear that actually you cannot fully appreciate the love of God without first seeing his justice. Actually, the Bible's clear. Justice, judgment, is good news. And it's, it's much more important than we think. It's much more important than our friends think, too. Those who, who tell us otherwise have probably never been on the receiving end of any injustice. Now, one of my all time favourite films is, is a film called Arlington Road. I don't know if, uh, if you know it or have seen it. I want to just, uh, I'm going to show you the trailer for it. I'm also going to spoil the end. I is not so bad. not so They were wrong. They were The more wizards are joining the ranks of resistance. Average, normal, educated, speed up. Crash, to the top. Ready, my own dare. Hey, man. Let me next door. Yeah, that is his here, I'm engineer. He had this... incorrect. It, it was an office building started out. I didn't you the Lucky Mark. Uh, possible name change. What did it say? to the of his name? To the name of the person that died the day before we got. Why? Because I had to press anyway. from the subject, it deals with experience groups. <laughs> Brilliant film, so Jeff bridges um, in, in the film he plays a university lecturer whose um, subject is terrorist groups and uh, at the start of the film, um, we find out his his wife uh, had been killed she was an FBI agent, killed, um, several years earlier um, gunned down on the whilst, whilst working um, and so he 's a single parent looking after his ten year old son and in the street that he lives, Tim Robbins and family arrive and as the film progresses Jeff Bridges becomes increasingly convinced that, that Tim Robbins is not just some business, some uh, uh, contractor making a shopping mall but actually he's a terrorist and is planning to blow up something um, and uh, he gets more and more paranoid about this. Doesn't want his son spending time with uh, with Tim Robbins and his family and their 10-year-old son. And his girlfriend actually leaves him because she thinks he's just getting too obsessed to... Yeah, uh, with with all this thinking about this family being a terrorist. And as the film progresses, you're kind of going, well, is he? Is he not? Is he? Is, is he imagining it? Is it real? And... It turns out it is real. Um, and at the, the end of the film, Tim Robbins has kidnapped his his 10-year-old son. He's got him in the back of the van. He's seen a bomb being loaded in the van. Uh, he finds out the target of the bomb is the FBI headquarters. And so he kind of gets in his car and is chasing across town to get to the FBI headquarters before the bomb gets there and warn them what's going to happen and all the rest of it. And uh, there's an amazing kind of car chase thing, and they have a bit of a fight as well in a car park. And he's kind of left battered and bruised, and the van drives off to the FBI, and he gets manages to kind of rouse himself, get back in his car, get chase the FBI buildings, and uh, smashes through the gates, and so, all, of course, all the security people are out with their guns. Who's this madman chatting about a bomb? And eventually, you know, there's all this kind of standoff. They've got guns to his head. Who's this crazy man? It, eventually, he, he persuades them that that van over there has got a bomb in it, so they go over to the van, open it up. There's no bomb. Then he realises what's happened. Whilst he was having the scuffle in the car park, they switch the bomb from the van to the boot of his car, and actually he's the one that's driven the bomb into the FBI headquarters. He runs back to his car, opens the boot, sees the bomb, boom. The next scenes you see, uh, news headlines talking about Jeff Bridges and how he had uh, motive for wanting to blow up the FBI because his wife died many years ago and... Uh, and yeah, how many years lecturing about terrorism has obviously warped his mind. And, and, you, and it cuts to a uh, final scene. Tim Robbins with his arm round uh, the other guy's son and the son trying to come to terms with the fact his his father, or so he thinks, has, has uh, tried to blow up the FBI. And at the end of the film, you're just distraught. And you, you just think, well, that's, that's just not fair. Um, where's, where's the justice? You cry out. Um, it wasn't him. He's been incorrectly blamed for this thing. And, and Tim Robbins is just going away scot-free uh, with his family left to plan the next target, that they're going to explode. So that's there's something deep within us as human beings that that cries out for justice when we see injustice. And if there is no judgment, well, here's the problem. With no judgment, it means our actions ultimately don't matter. It means might is right. It means oppressors can just get away with whatever they want to do. It means people don't matter. Millions of Tutsis can be rounded up in churches and bludgeoned to death or burnt alive. And that doesn't matter. And ultimately, there's no judgment. It means evil prospers. But if God is one day going to judge as the Bible makes it clear, then that means what we do does matter. It means people do have value. It means evil will not triumph, but there is hope. And that is very, very good news. But at the same time, if there's going to be a judgement, and that God is the judge who is just and right, who knows even our hearts, well, actually, maybe that's not the best news for us. Because how will we escape judgment? For well, the rest of the Bible is clear as to how that happens. And just as Lot had someone to intercede to the Father on his behalf. Verse 29 of chapter 19. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So just as as Lot had someone to intercede to the Father on his behalf, so we too have one greater than Abraham, who does the same for us. And I want to finish by reading from Isaiah 53. Some words that make that clear. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of the soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we want to thank you and to, to worship you for the sacrifice that, that you made on our behalf. Thank you that you were judged, you took the punishment that we deserved. And that now you intercede to the Father on our behalf to say I've taken it all there's now no condemnation for those trusting in me thank you for that glorious, glorious good news help us Lord to to trust that that Great promises of your gospel are true for us. Forgive us for when we think that we know better than you. For when we think that, that actually our, our own good deeds, our own righteousness is, is what pleases you, is what makes you accept us as your children. Forgive us for that, Lord. Forgive us for, for doubting. That you have the power, to do what you have promised. So, Father, just we, yeah, we're just blown away. By, your, your wrath, and your mercy that we see, so superbly demonstrated, on the cross. Help us, Lord, to to live um, in the light of of the freedom that we have. So thank you, Father. Um, Thank you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.